I want to say thank you. That was beautiful. Kind of got me teared up, those praises and that music. Good morning. Good morning. What a blessing to be here. And I am so happy that you are here as well. It is so good to see you. I think uh, that God must be smiling to hear those words from those songs and those words of praises that we have lifted up to him this morning. What a privilege. Well, we've come to the uh, end of the fall semester. Eleven weeks we've been walking with Jesus. What an amazing time this has been, walking with Jesus and learning those lessons that he taught the disciples and the lessons that he had for us as well. It's been a great time to think about Jesus and to walk with him. And now that we come to an end, I hope that we will continue walking with him. Don't stop walking with Jesus and listening to him. We want to walk with him until we meet him face to face in glory one day. After um, today, we're going to take a little break. We're going to stop for the holidays, and we will come back on January 13th. But don't stop reading and studying your Bible. And if you want to get a jump on the um, next study, then read the book of Isaiah. Because when we come back uh, on January 13th, we're going to begin a 16-week study of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a majestic and powerful and beautiful book. And in it we see God's holiness and his divine character so vividly described. And we also meet Jesus in Isaiah. We meet our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isaiah has more to say about Jesus than any other book in the Old Testament. So come back and join us January the 13th. I'm Deb Haygood, and it is a great privilege for me to talk about John 17. You know, this um, prayer of Jesus is beautiful, and it lifts it up to the Father, and it's intimate, and it's a great privilege to be here reading it today. We've already talked about prayer this semester. You might remember on the third week, Kathy Harrelson talked about prayer. Um, We learned a lot about what Jesus had to say about prayer with the Lord's Prayer and also with those parables on prayer and then verses that told us how to live a life of prayer. But I think two weeks is okay to spend on prayer because prayer is so important. In fact, it's essential to our relationship with God because prayer is communication. And without communication, our relationship with God grows cold and distant. This prayer of Jesus is a mature prayer, and we too can grow in our prayer life. Now, having said that, I sometimes think that the prayers of children are so honest and so simple, yet filled with so much faith, that we marvel at them. Scott and I, my husband and I, uh, prayed with our children, and we taught our children how to pray, and I still remember some of those prayers. I remember when Ben was probably about five years old, our son, he um, would pray at the dinner table, and he would end the prayer always by saying, and make this food good. (laughs) So after a couple weeks of that, make this food good, I finally said, Ben, do you not think my cooking is good? Um, Is this food not good? And he looked at me very puzzled, and he said, "Uh, 
well, yes, I think it's good, but isn't that what it means when you say, bless this food? Doesn't that mean to make this food good? And we kind of smiled because Ben is our analytical child. He is our thinker. And so even at that early age, he had begun to listen to prayers and to discern um, what they were saying and then to put it in his own words. You know, there were no memorized prayers for Ben. And then I remember our daughter, Rachel. She's actually two years older than Ben. I can remember um, she was probably about three years old. Now, Rachel is um, our... Uh, concrete child. She is very literal. She goes by the book. So when she was three, I noticed that every time I gave her like her bowl of cereal or her peanut butter sandwich or whatever, she would eat and then she would stop. And she'd bow her head and she'd be quiet and then she'd start eating again. And so finally after a few days of that, I said, Rach, what are you doing? And she said, Mom, don't you know you have to pray if you want to grow, grow, grow. And I kind of looked at her, not sure what to say um, to that, because I thought, well, somebody either in Sunday school or some song, she had learned that prayer was necessary for spiritual growth. But for my literal child, who was the shortest in her class, I think she thought, I need to take advantage of this. I'm going to pray so that I can grow, grow, grow. <laughs> I learned a lot uh, by listening to my children's prayers over the years. I saw their heart. And that is what we see in this prayer of Jesus in John 17. We see his heart. His heart for his father. His heart for his disciples. And his heart for us. This is hallowed ground that we're on today. And I uh, feel very inadequate to teach on this um, prayer. But I've prayed that um, my words would not distract you from the words of this prayer. And that they might bring you closer to Jesus. So let's turn to John 17 and get started here. While you're turning, let me tell you that this is taking place on the night that Jesus um, was going to be arrested and then tried in a kangaroo court and then tortured and then the next day nailed to the cross. That was going to be happening in a very short period of time. Now, we know that Jesus had just eaten with the disciples in the upper room. Um, That started back in John 13 when Jesus washed their feet. And we have talked about how he broke the bread and he gave that to them and said, this is my body, and he poured the wine and he said, this is my blood that has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And then he looked at Judas and he said, go and do what you have to do quickly. And then he gave the disciples some last words of instruction and explanation and comfort. And those are chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then, after he finished talking to the disciples, he began talking to the Father. Now, some think that they had left the upper room and they were walking along to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples were walking with him when he looked up to heaven and began to pray. Others think that he was still in the upper room, that they, uh, he prayed this prayer, and then they went out and began walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think um, it's important exactly for us to know. What I do think is important is that Jesus prayed this out loud, and the disciples heard it, and they recorded it, and we can read it today so that we get to see Jesus' heart of love. What a great way to end this study of walking with Jesus by looking at Jesus' heart and seeing his great, great love. 
This prayer is called the High Priestly Prayer. Some call it the Great Prayer. Others call it the Real Lord's Prayer. And we're calling it the Intercessory Prayer of Jesus. Now, we have talked about prayers of intercession before. A prayer of intercession is a prayer that one person prays for another. It also can mean to meet with um, or to come between. It's interceding for another. And Jesus begins this prayer by praying first for himself. And I'm grateful because it gives us permission to pray for ourselves first at times. Sometimes we need to get our hearts right or we need to get our spirit right before we can pray for others. Now, this isn't the case for Jesus, but I appreciate the example that he gave us. Sometimes it's not selfish for us to pray for ourselves first. Sometimes it's essential that we pray for ourselves first so that we can then intercede for others. It's like that oxygen mask dropping down on an airplane. You know, when the pressure drops and the mask comes down, you're supposed to put it on yourself first then help your child or um, others around you. That's because oxygen is necessary for life, and we can't go very long without it, and we will not be any good to anyone. Sometimes um, it's the same with us with God. God is our lifeline, and sometimes we need to go and pray for ourselves first before God and then intercede for others. So let's begin uh, reading in chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He begins his prayer by saying, Father, that warm, intimate word that describes their relationship. And we, too, can say, Father. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Our Father in heaven. And then he says, The time has come. What time has come? We talked about that in the questions. What time has come? It's time for the divine plan of redemption, the cross and the resurrection, the time when Jesus would become our atoning sacrifice, when he would take our punishment. Now, I like it that it says the time has come because it shows us the sovereignty of God. We can know that this time was not some last-minute plan. This wasn't a hasty rescue operation that um, was thrown into place because things weren't quite working out for Jesus when he was on earth. No, this is God's plan of redeeming us that was set in motion way back in the beginning. His plan of love for us. And we see it in Genesis 3. And Lynn Kitchens talked about it in depth when we, she talked about the cross. This is God's plan of salvation for man for you and for me. And then Jesus says, glorify your son. This is the one thing that Jesus asks of the Father, that he would be glorified. In fact, we see um, the word glory or glorified five times in those first five verses. Glory. What a beautiful word that is. 
and yet how hard it is to um, describe it sometimes or to define it or to really get a grasp of it. When we are talking about the glory of God, we might say it is the manifestation of his divine attributes and perfections. It's bright splendor. Unger's Bible Dictionary said, glory is the expression of holiness as beauty is the expression of health. Glory is the expression of holiness. My husband likes to explain it um, like this. He says it's like a marquee that has the title of maybe a movie on it. And you know what I'm talking about with those big, chunky white lights all the way around it. And it's lit up. And we take notice of that title. That's what the glory of God is. We take notice of who he is and his attributes. His glory makes us take notice. It also can mean um, the divine works of God that can also be referred to as his glory. And Jesus is asking to be glorified. And what he really um, is included here are two things. First, successful endurance of the cross. And secondly, that he would then be exalted to the Father's presence. So first let's look at the successful endurance of the cross. This was the work the Father gave him to do. To come to earth with authority over all people, to reveal the Father, to show others the Father's wisdom and his power and his great love, and then to reconcile a lost and wayward people with a holy God, to reconcile them, to bring eternal life. And we read here that eternal life is to know God. To know God is to have a deep and intimate relationship with God. In this, in this work, Jesus brought God glory. Now in verse 4, Jesus says, I have completed the work. Now we know that the cross is one day away. We've said that. But it is a certainty. And time in heaven is different than the timeline that we have on earth. Time in heaven is past and present and future altogether. So Jesus can say, I have completed the work. To go to the cross was part of um, the glorification um, for Christ. And as he was glorified in that, he brought glory to the Father. And then secondly, Jesus asked to be glorified in God's presence with the glory that he had had before the beginning of time. Last week we talked about Jesus came to earth. He sacrificed himself on our behalf. He took on the form of man. And we said he did not hold on tight to that deity. He didn't hold on tight to manifesting his glory on earth. But now he's asking, asking God to take him back into the presence of the Father, asking that he might be um, restored to that glory that he had known. In this glorification that he's asking the Father to do, it includes the Father sustaining Jesus in suffering. It includes accepting his sacrifice. It includes resurrecting him. And it includes returning him to heaven to be with him. In these five verses, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart of love for the Father. His heart that loves the Father and does his will and brings him glory. His heart of love for the Father that wants to be back in his presence in heaven. 
As we ponder and meditate on this prayer, I would hope that we could pray um, that we might bring God glory, that my heart for the Lord and his word and for his people would bring him glory, that my life um, would be a testimony to his power and his love for me, and that would bring him, him glory, that my words that I use to praise him and to tell others about him would bring him glory. I want to pray, Father, let me bring you glory. Then in verse 6, we begin the part of the prayer where he's praying for his beloved disciples. And here we see the heart that Jesus has for his disciples. I'm going to begin reading in 6 and read through verse 10. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For that I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I want you to remember that he is praying this out loud and the disciples can hear what Jesus is praying to the Father. And what they hear is Jesus praising them to the Father. And he's saying that the Father gave them to him. Now, uh, Jesus had already told them just a little bit in, uh, a while ago, back in John 15. This is in the upper room on your verse sheet. Let me get it out here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. And they would also remember when this happened in Luke 6, 12 through 13, one of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Now, you remember in the very beginning, there were many that were following Jesus, and they were called his disciples. But Jesus prayed, and he chose 12, which became his apostles. And it says he spent the night praying. He was asking God, which men do you have for me? Who are the 12, the 12 apostles? They were a gift from God. And the disciples hear Jesus say that, that they are a gift from God. And then he says, they have obeyed your word. Now think about that for a minute. I don't know if I was Jesus, if I would have said that. I might have said, hey, and thanks a lot for these disciples. How about Simon the Zealot, this political activist running around? And then you gave me Philip, always cautious. How slow can you be, Lord? And then there's the Zebedee brothers, John and James. They have anger issues. And Thomas... Well, we know what he's going to say. And then Peter, 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 what will come out of your mouth next? No, he doesn't say any of that to the Father. He says, they have obeyed your word. What those words must have meant to the disciples. How do you think it made them feel? How would it make you feel? I would have been elated proud and yet humbled at the same time. I would have been strengthened and encouraged by these words. 
You know when someone says something great about you. Have you ever been in the presence of someone saying something great about you? And you want to live up to what they said about you. I can remember years ago at the hospital, I'm a nurse, and one day another nurse introduced me to a nurse I was going to be working with, and she said, oh, you'll love Debbie. She is a good nurse. She takes great care of her patients. Boy, I stood up tall, and I thought, I am taking great care of my patients. And still today, when I am tired after at the end of a long shift, I'm thinking, I'm still going to take great care of my patients. I wanted to live up to those words. How important these words would be to the disciples in their future work. How they must have remembered them. And then Jesus goes on to say, He gave them the words that God had given him. He didn't give them possessions or property, not wealth, but words. God's words. What a great possession. And they are God's gift to us as well. We have his words right here. The holy word of God. And it says, and Jesus says, they accepted them. And he tells the Father, they knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believed. They believed. Okay, now think about this again. Just right back in the upper room, when Jesus was saying, you know the way um, to the place where I'm going. And Thomas says, well, we don't know the way. Lord, how can we know the way? And then there was Philip a little bit later that just said, just show me the Father. Just show us the Father. And yet Jesus says here, they believed. They believed. I think that in the future, when times were very difficult, this was going to encourage them to remember these words that Jesus said. They believed. And I think when their faith was weak, these words would strengthen them. Because these words must have rung out in their mind and in their heart. They believed. In verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. And the world here refers to unbelievers. And we see that word a lot in this prayer. It refers to unbelievers. Those that are opposed to God or those indifferent to God. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about the world. He came to die for the world. Instead, he is concentrating on the 11 disciples. It's as, a, as a, if, as a mother, you were dying. You would want your words of instruction and encouragement and your um, prayers to go first to your children. It reminds me of a friend that died um, some years past. And I can remember towards the end when she was growing weak, and she said this very thing. I want the strength that I have left to be spent with my children and my husband. I want to give them, give that to my children. I can't see any more of my friends. That is what Jesus is saying here. This longest part of his prayer is lifted up on behalf of his disciples that he loved so dearly. And then there's a last praise in verse 10 where it says, And glory has come to me through them. They have brought him glory. And they heard him say that. And then we go on to verse 11. Let me read um, a few more verses here. Verse 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. In verse 11, we see the first thing that uh, Jesus asks God for the disciples, and that is to protect them. Or a better word might be preserve them or keep them. And how? By the power of your name. Now this could be a whole lesson, the name of God. But let me just say these couple of things. God's name is linked to his character and to his identity. His name is powerful. His name protects us. It saves us. It gives us life. It sustains us. It justifies us. It helps us. On your verse sheet, Proverbs 18:10 says, "The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe." Jesus had kept them safe by his name that God had given him. And now Jesus is leaving the earth and he's returning to heaven. And he's leaving them and he asks the Father to protect them, to preserve them from a hostile, hate-filled word, to keep them from growing weary in this hostile world. He wants, uh, he asks them to be protected from the evil one as well. To be preserved in this world, that they wouldn't grow weary. On your verse sheet, I have Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if, if we do not give up. And then secondly, he prayed, keep them from the evil one. Keep them, protect their minds so that they will not be conformed to this world, because they are not of this world. That's high praise as well. Keep them. Keep their minds strong. Romans 12:2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus didn't ask for them to be taken out of this world because they had a mission. They had work to do. They were to go out and spread the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the one and only way to God. They were to give the good news of Jesus to the people to tell them how he loved them and died for them so that they might be reconciled to God and how he was resurrected so that we too may have new life and that life everlasting. The disciples had important work to do. Now let me go back just for a minute to verse 12 where it says there, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, this is referring to Judas. Judas, the um, disciple that never became one of them, who did not believe the words of Jesus. Now, this is a hard passage to explain, so let me just uh, quickly um, tell you what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. It said, Judas did what he wanted, which was betray Jesus. 
and became an unwitting tool of Satan. Even people's volitional free acts fit into God's sovereign plan. Now that's a hard thing for us to uh, understand. We know that it's true. Uh, we know that God is sovereign, that he brings his will to pass. He brings his will to pass in our lives, and yet we have free will. And those free acts that we do fit into God's sovereign plan. We will not totally understand it, I don't think, this side of heaven. But we will when we go to glory. The message says it like this. Except for the rebel bent on destruction, the exception that proved the rule of scripture. And then we see in verse 13 the second request that Jesus um, has for the Father. And that is that the disciples might have the full measure of my joy within them. On your outline I have, he asks that they may have joy. Now we talked about joy last week. We said that joy is that um, delightful human emotion that lodges deep within the human heart. And it's not necessarily related to one's circumstances. So we can experience joy in the midst of difficult and even painful situations. And I think we see that come to um, this prayer come to pass and be answered in Acts 5 on your verse sheet. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They never stopped proclaiming. They went rejoicing even in the midst of this painful and humiliating um, time, this time of ridicule and pain. They never stopped rejoicing and talking about Jesus. And the third thing we see Jesus ask for the disciples is in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. You know, sanctify is such a spiritual word. It's such a churchy word, and I just love it. I love that word sanctify because the meaning is so deep, and it holds so much promise for us. To sanctify means to set apart for sacred use, to perfect. Sanctify means being holy and becoming holy. It's a progression. And our sanctification continues until we go on to glory. And I love that Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day Jesus comes back or until we go to meet him in heaven. It's a progression. It continues on. And sanctification changes us to be more like Christ by the word, by this word. It's because this word is God's truth. So sanctification happens when we are reading the word and listening and memorizing it and studying it and meditating on God's word. His truth changes us. It is his word that sets us apart for special use. We too, like the disciples, are to be distinct from this world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're different from the world's beliefs and values and purposes and goals because we too have been set apart for special use. As I look back over these words, 
that Jesus lifted up to the Father on behalf of the disciples, I see his heart of deep, overwhelming love for his disciples. And it motivates me to want to pray for those that I deeply love too. But sometimes I don't know how to pray for them. I don't know exactly what words to say. And so I think that Jesus gives us a great example here because I can pray for others to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be protected, to be filled with joy, and to grow in God's truth. Our prayers for others are so important. And if sometimes you think, what do my uh, prayers matter? Are they important? I want to read you this may um, motivate you. It is a story that Billy Graham told about. He says, a missionary and his family were forced to camp outside on a hill. They had money with them, and they were fearful of an attack by roving thieves. But after praying, they went to sleep. Months later, an injured man was brought into the mission hospital, and he asked the missionary if he had soldiers guarding him on that special night. We intended to rob you, he said, but we were afraid of the 27 soldiers. This was curious to the missionary, and when the missionary returned to his homeland, he related this strange story, and a member of his church said, we had a prayer meeting that night, and I counted who was there. And there were 27 of us. Our prayers on behalf of others matter a great deal. Then in verse 20, let's read that. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Did you just hear that? I pray for those who will believe in me. That is you and me. That is Jesus praying for us right here, and we get to see those words that he prayed for us. Now, I am very encouraged when I hear that someone is praying for me. In fact, in the middle of this lesson, a sweet friend texted me and said, I'm praying for you. And it was such a thrill to my heart. It lifted me up. How much more when we think about Jesus praying for us? And not only that, he prays for us still, even today. And we know that in Romans 8.34 it says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And in 1 John 2.1 we read, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is in heaven praying for us, interceding for us even today. So let's read what Jesus prayed for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So first he prays for unity for the believers, unity for us, that we may be one just as the Father and Jesus are one. Now were you surprised by that? 
of all the things that Jesus could pray for us, and he prays for unity among believers, that's how important unity must be. And why is it important? So that the world may believe, that they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came so that we may know the way to God. He came as our atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to God. In verse 23, he says, He has given us the glory so that we may be one. He um, is one in us. He dwells within us. And that is how we can have unity. We want to have unity of believers first so the world will believe. And then secondly, it says, so that the world will see his love for them. That they may sense God's love for the believers is deep and intimate and lasting just as his love is for his son. You know that quarreling is not divine. It's not loving. The world has little respect for a quarreling church. They ridicule and they hold the church in contempt when they see them quarreling. And thus the name of Jesus is held in contempt as well. But I read this quote that says, The world opens its eyes in wonder at a community in which peace and concord prevail. Now, I'm not telling, I'm saying that we should have one world religion. I'm talking about unity. There's a difference between uniformity and unity. This is the unity among believers that is a unity of love. It's a unity of obedience to God and his word. It's being united in that commitment to do God's will. I've had the privilege of going to Tanzania four times uh, with the women, and we have a women's conference there, and each time I am amazed at the love there is between us, our love for them and their love for us, and it's because we're one in the Lord. Our culture is different. The way we worship God is different, but we are sisters in Christ. We are one in the Lord. We have the same goal, and that is to do the will of our Father. Ephesians 4, uh, 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of Spirit. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We must pray for believers um, to have unity. And then in verse 24, we see another request of Jesus for us, and he's asking the Father that we may be with him and that we might see his glory, that we might share in that, this glory that he had before the creation of the world. And since we know that Jesus asked the Father, we can rest assured that this will come to pass, that one day, as believers in Jesus Christ, we will be with him in glory. Oh, what a day that will be. Sometimes I think I see a glimpse of God's glory when I look into the newborn face of my grandchild or when I see a glorious sunset lighting up the sky. And yet I think that's going to pale in comparison to the glory we experience when we're with him in heaven. And we are going to be glorified as well. Romans 8.30 says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We will be glorified one day when we go on to be with our Lord. 
And Jesus closes his prayer by saying, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus made his love for the Father and his love for us known by giving his life for us. And the Father made his love known for Jesus by raising him to life and on to glory. Jesus prays that this kind of love may be in each of us. God is love, and Jesus loves you and me. It reminds me of that chorus that says, Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this prayer. Thank you, Father, for letting us see your heart of love, for letting us see this heart of love that Jesus has for you, for the disciples, and for us. Father, may we be motivated by this prayer to intercede for others, to pray for others, to encourage them. Father, to pray for unity among the believers. Father, I thank you for each woman in this room, and I thank you, Father, for the blessings that you have given each of us. And I pray, Lord, as we go into this Thanksgiving time, that we might have grateful hearts lifting up our thanksgiving to you for all that you've done. You are a mighty God. You are a loving God, a good God, a merciful God. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.